school time, and that has many parents talking about immunizations. Getting vaccinated is important to keep kids healthy while in school, but immunizations continue well into your adulthood. On today's program, we'll talk about the importance of immunizations throughout your lifetime and about the anti-cancer vaccine that many people are not getting. Find out why next. Good day, Southeast Wisconsin. I'm David Todd. August is National Immunization Awareness Month, and we'll talk with one of the leading infectious disease specialists in the world, Dr. Rodney Willoughby, the scientist credited with developing the Wisconsin Protocol in which a rabies victim's life had been saved for the very first time. We'll also speak with Dr. Ernestine Willis about working within the community and how a decade-long study has yielded some impressive results. But first, CTSI, or the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin, is a consortium of researchers, scientists, doctors, and others working in collaboration to advance biomedical discoveries and to find new drugs, therapeutics, and interventions faster and more cost-effectively than ever before. One of those researchers is Dr. Rodney Willoughby, a pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, who joins us to help us better understand why immunizations are a good thing throughout your life. Dr. Willoughby, let me ask you this. Most of us get our immunizations as a child for things like chicken pox, measles, mumps. But doctor, for our listeners, let's start by talking about what a vaccine is, what they do, and why they're important. So vaccines are um, usually some sort of a, either an activated or weakened uh, bacterium or virus that's used to stimulate immunity so that we can prevent the real disease from occurring in that patient. And um, you get um, these uh, immunizations over a course of time to build up that uh, immunity, correct? Right. So these are trying to prevent communicable diseases. Uh, some start right at birth, and so we do too. And other ones, uh, you can wait a little while. Um, and you get these vaccines throughout your lifetime. So as a child, what do we get then? Well, we start off uh, with uh, the first anti-cancer vaccine, which is against hepatitis B. Uh, then we get a variety of, uh, of uh, vaccines against uh, bacterial diseases that cause meningitis or whooping cough or things of the like. And then we start moving into diseases that you acquire later in childhood. Uh, and now there are actually a bunch of adult uh, vaccines as well. And I was going to ask you that. You know, as a young adult and teens, there are some new vaccines out. And obviously, there are new vaccines out for the adults, like the flu vaccine. Um, tell me about some of the ones that we get uh, when we start entering our uh, teenage years and our adult years. Well, uh, they've developed what's called the adolescent platform, and that's to cover diseases which tend to be more common uh, after the, the early school head years, so when you hit high school, uh, essentially. So um, meningococcal disease, which is a fearsome infection, uh, is given at that time. Uh, you uh, boost, again, the pertussis and tetanus vaccines, uh, again, horrible diseases. And then uh, the HPV vaccine, which is a, the second anti-cancer vaccine, is given at that time. Excellent. And then as, we're, as we get into adulthood, we know um, that we uh, should get a yearly flu shot to help that out. What else is where as we're adults? Well, uh, adults now, uh, again, they're recognizing that a lot of the whooping cough goes in adults. Tetanus continues to be an issue. Uh, there are pneumonia vaccines that are given to adults. Uh, 
And uh, the, there is also now a zoster vaccine, which is designed to prevent the, the late complication of chickenpox, uh, which is quite painful and, and embarrassing. So what is, obviously the point of, of having people vaccinated is to keep them healthy, um, but the, the greater um, goal of having people vaccinated is to control these very, um, uh, these very infectious diseases, correct? Well, that's correct. Uh, and, and that's the difference between public health, which is trying to control the vaccine across the entire state or nation, and your responsibility as a physician to protect your individual patient. And sometimes there can be tension between those two. And let's talk a little bit further about that. Why is there such a stigma around immunization? I really don't have a clue. Uh, what, what has been notable based upon the research is there are actually two groups that don't get vaccinated. The first group are those that are most marginalized in society, the poorest, uh, and those groups it's usually an issue of b being able to pay or having access to the vaccines, and uh, that really should never happen. The interesting second phenomenon is that there's a second group of vaccine-hesitant uh, families who are usually college-educated uh, and highly affluent and who choose not to uh, for reasons which uh, aren't often fully developed, uh, but which uh, seems to be a, an enduring trend in the uh, United States for the last uh, maybe 20 years. And here's a good question for you. How do you know, as an adult, if you've been immunized for all the things that you need to be immunized for? Is there a place you can check uh, if you're missing anything? Well, that's finally getting better. Before, you had to carry around the sheets of paper or try and figure out who your pediatrician was years ago. And for many of the vaccines, they may actually not last more than about 10 years, although some of ours uh, last as long as we've been able to measure. So it really varies by the vaccine. These days, uh, largely as a result of federal regulations, there are now vaccine registries, which are computerized and online, which are tremendously helpful at allowing us to figure out where the chinks in the armor for each individual is. Great. And the, and the best way to do that is to go visit your doctor? Yes. And, and again, most doctors have easy uh, computer links to the vaccine registries, which allow us to figure that out really in each and every visit. And part of the reason for that is we recognize we're actually not very good at promoting this. I think HPV vaccine is probably the poster child for how badly we do. And what's been recognized is uh, most of the... Um, the drop in vac or the inadequate vaccination is because uh, the doctors don't check regularly and don't promote regularly, and we're seeking to change that now. Now, you mentioned the HPV vaccine, and you mentioned um, that you sit on a board uh, for the CDC about the HPV vaccine. Um, tell me about, um, tell me what HPV vaccine is um, and why we're having such a hard time adopting it. Well, HPV stands for human papillomavirus, which is a mouthful, but it's a, a family of viruses which tend to cause uh, skin infections uh, and sometimes uh, infections of the, uh, the lungs. And uh, these viruses are subtle, uh, but some of them uh, promote tumors and so lead to cancers. And unfortunately, those cancers usually develop maybe 10 or even 20 years after the infection. So we're trying to prevent uh, things which will actually ultimately uh, attack the person uh, a decade or two after uh, they leave us as pediatricians. Gotcha. And the HPV vaccine should be given to people who are in their preteen or teenage years, correct? 
Right. That's how the vaccine was studied. Uh, in retrospect, that may have been a mistake. Uh, the other uh, anti-cancer vaccines given at birth, and that's for uh, for liver cancers. Uh, this vaccine was given in adolescence with the thought that that was probably the least populated part of the vaccine scheduled. Uh, but because HPV is often translated uh, transmitted sexually, it has loaded the vaccine with a lot of uh, baggage in terms of whether it uh, promotes uh, sexual promiscuity, my child will never do anything that I don't know about, uh, those sorts of issues. And that, unfortunately, has become more of a political phenomenon than a medical phenomenon. Dr. Willoughby, of the viruses that are out there right now that are being studied and that we have no inoculation or immunization for, what is your biggest fear as far as the most immediate threat to our community or to global health? Well, I think the global health one are some of these epidemic hemorrhagic fevers, such as we saw last year with Ebola. And unfortunately, these are, well, fortunately, I guess these are relatively rare. Unfortunately, they're small and rare enough where there's not a huge effort and certainly no financial market to develop them. So I think uh, these are particular challenges because we essentially have to spend a lot of money coming, covering a lot of bases. Uh, when uh, very few people ultimately will be affected. The, the problem is we don't know which ones become the next pandemic. Um, probably far more important are many more common things. Uh, there's been attempts for years to uh, have a vaccination against herpes simplex, which is a devastating disease in small babies and in mothers, and uh, uh, really a scourge uh, for normal activity in adult life. Uh, there are several flavors of that virus. Um, the other one which has been, I think, the holy grail for pediatricians is a vaccine against what's called the Group B Streptococcus, which uh, is probably the leading cause now of uh, sepsis and meningitis in, uh, in all of childhood, but particularly in small babies, and which causes still regularly devastation today. And uh, we uh, have still tried for now decades to get a good vaccine against that and have yet to, uh, to fully succeed. So in talking about the HPV vaccine, why do we think the, um, the immunization rates are still so low, other than that stigma? You know, uh, what, what it's, it's very clear right now that really only 40% of girls and 20% of boys are completing the vaccine series. And really, resistance to vaccines is no greater than about 10% of the American population. So that means there's a ball being dropped there, and it's being dropped by physicians. And uh, this is a concern because that means that Basically, one in every 350 to 400 boys and girls is going to continue to develop cancers that are vaccine-preventable today, and that's an embarrassment. And what, what focus groups have found is that the pediatrician or the family practitioner is highly influential in those choices and yet neglects to promote it actively and personally. And so we're, there are now huge efforts by the American Academy of Pediatrics, by the American Academy of Family Practitioners, the CDC, to have the pediatricians and family practitioners step up and become responsible truly for preventing very common cancers in adult life. Again, thank you, Doctor, for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. We'll put a link on our website to the Wisconsin Immunization Registry so that you can search for members of your family and yourself. I just found out that I need a booster shot, too. When we come back, we'll be talking with Dr. Ernestine Willis about a decade-long study that has Milwaukee's children healthier.
Our next guest is the director for the Center for the Advancement of Underserved Children, a cooperative endeavor between Children's Hospital of Wisconsin and the Medical College. The center just finished a decade-long study on ways to keep Milwaukee's kids healthy. What did you discover then that has made you take on this project that's lasting a decade? This project was exciting because it gave us an opportunity to work closely with the community, and we embarked upon in 2005 what we call a community health assessment. That community health assessment led us to discover at least with the community partnering with us about 42 different issues that they saw as disparities in their communities. We took that and narrowed it down from those 42 and let me give an example. The range of issues could be we need more green space, we have unsafe streets, we have birth outcomes, adverse birth outcomes, we have obesity problems, we have immunization problems. And so when we asked them to identify their issues, it meant a full spectrum, education issues. But we decided because we were going to NIH for a grant that we wanted a specific health um, model that we could try to address in a short-term pilot. And immunization was the focus that, that we collectively came upon. We, what we did identify for the immunization that children between birth and 18, there was a grave disparity, I would say. What is expected on a national level, Healthy People 2020 would like the prevalence of up-to-date immunization to be above 80. What we found in our community, when we took children between the ages of 19 and 35 months to get their immunization coverage rate for being up-to-date for the series of vaccines that they should have for that age, we found we were seeing 35 and 40 levels significant disparities. The state level was around 80 at that time and the city's level was around 77. So for the two neighborhoods that we started out in, we felt it was very critical that we take this on as a disparity issue that maybe we could do something about. Did you, uh, were you able to point to anything um, uh, in particular that you thought was um, uh, contributing to that disparity between the state numbers and the um, city numbers? We did go on to, well, let me just say what this process we call using a community-based participatory research approach. And that approach would say that you identify a community as a unit, you share assets and strengths of the community, and you educate each other. We educated researchers about the community, the assets, as well as the weakness in, that this community was challenged by. And then we also help the um, community understand the purpose of research and the objectives of research. So we build a bi-directional education model, which is, uh, I call, we build an infrastructure within the community that would be open for the benefits of research. And that's quite critical, because communities like this who've been in uh, disadvantaged circumstances for years um, a little bit skeptic of researchers who come in, and many times researchers do come into the community and do their research and then helicopter out, leaving the community no better off. This process was set up to try to improve the community and to build community capacity around research. So when you started the, the uh, project back in 2005, mm -hmm. and you started interacting with uh, parents um, of children who needed to have immunizations, right. um, what was their uh, reasoning, what was their um, thought process behind uh, not having the children immunized? Well, now that's an interesting because as we've continued our assessment, we discovered there were barriers, definitely. There was also uh, facilitators. And they helped us to better understand the first assessment when we did surveys of the parents. We found that parents really perceived their children were up to date. 
So that's a mismatch or discordant between what we documented in, in the registry. The other issue we had to uh, help us understand, whether or not the children were in the registry, they were being, they were adequately being documented. Found that 92% of the children in the area that we recruited from were in the registry. So the registry proved to be the Wisconsin Immunization Registry I'm referring to, proved to be a great tool that we could use for tracking and monitoring children. We also partnered with other programs like the WIC program, uh, community help, uh, community centers, which was like settlement houses, as and they call them CBOs, to help us have access to that population. But when you get down to when we talk about barriers, some of the barriers they were talking about would be transportation, um, also the professional environment that they are seeing in the clinical setting, the language. But we also found that what people found having a good relationship with their health care provider was essential. The parents felt that they were the greatest facilitator. Over 50% of them said, we are the best facilitators. And we gave them um, pointers about how you can make a um, checklist before you go to the doctor to make sure you answer X, all the questions that you want to inquire about. And then um, making sure that you can go into the registry and get your own record. So we trained them how to go into the registry and look up their children's immunization. And those were all tools to uh, get back to that capacity building that we built into our intervention during the time that we, that was five years into this project, that we uh, executed throughout the community. Now we started out with two zip codes, moved to four zip codes, and now we are in the final phase, which is the dissemination phase, where we're working across 10 zip codes. So it's a growing process. There's also an iterative process to it. The piece that I think is most remarkable was that we started out with a group of parents, which has grown. Some are grandparents, some are parents, and all of them have some interface and champion children. But they've also built a capacity in themselves to be stronger advocates for their families and their children and this community. And other agencies have benefited from some of the training that we've had. And, for example, they've worked with a Walnut Way and they've sit on many advisory groups throughout the city. They've worked with FAM allies. They've worked with other projects I have around training residents in the community. And they've also worked with the Medicaid, with Dr. Moyer. So they basically have uh, built capacity and empowered themselves to become strong advocates around health issues and health disparities. So it's not just limited to immunization. It has been a movement almost around uh, addressing health in this community. When we were when we were speaking with Dr. Willoughby earlier, um, one of the things that he pointed to was um, poor communication between physicians and their patients. Mm -hmm. And he said that you know a lot of the onus is on the physician for not you know bringing this up as a normal visit um, uh, question and something that happens on a normal uh, regular visit with their um, with their, uh, their kids. Well, uh, his point is well taken. Effective communication is critical. We've found that what we try to do, and we build a social media campaign around immunizations as in the intervention phase. We had an education component, a social media component, and then what we call a theory of planned behavior, where we are taking people who are most skeptic of immunizations and really pulling them to the side and building focus groups to get a little bit deeper depth, they call it the deep dive. But you know, his point is we're taking what miscommunication. Sometimes it's us getting outside of our world and the language and the terminology we use make it appropriate. And let me give a good example. Is that what we discovered in, when we were crafting our message 
is that when we didn't want to use terms that the community couldn't relate to. And professional people had some words like, get your children shots, as messages that we wanted to put in the uh, media campaign. Um, the parents quickly um, educated us <laughs> that shots would not be an appropriate term to use. And basically, their children being shot in this community with guns. And so using the term shot was not congruent with their world. So that's an example of, um, and they were very clear, they wanted to use the immunization, immunize. In fact, Take Control, Immunize is our subtitle, which is their social media campaign that they came up with themselves. So I agree with him, miscommunication is one of the issues. But also taking the time to build that relationship. Uh, we found the, the variables that we thought would uh, influence immunization compliance, maybe a friend recommended or a family member recommended. While parents admitted that they needed the social support of friends and family members around immunization, they didn't say they'd listen to them as far as advising them. They listened to their physician for when it comes to advice about immunizations. They did feel immunizations were safe, and if their physician recommended, they went along with it. They're, you know, Many of them have intentions because they've been doing it, and then some of them just needed to be educated. So we spent a lot of our time doing that education. But the other thing is making the education accessible. Um, brochures and handouts that we give are not always written in the language that they can understand. We build what we call a web-based platform and had them go in and help us design it. And so if you went to www.chimcmke.org, you would see our toolkit that we developed through this research endeavor, as well as an e-learning cafe that anyone can go into and educate themselves about immunizations, as well as take advantage of some of the checklists and other uh, ways to identify sites that you can get free immunizations, as well as learning how to, you can have a tutorial on how to go into the website of the Wisconsin Immunization Registry. So it sounds like the community has taken very well to this information. Mm -hmm. um, when this project is done in 2016, mm -hmm. um, tell me what success looks like to you. Success looks like to me that there is less skeptic and doubt about partnering with academics, and that's quite important, as far as I'm concerned, that there's definitely capacity building at the community level. I think the journey has been quite informative, and I just left this morning a meeting with the what they consider themselves community forward team. They named themselves. Uh, we start bringing them into what we call our steering body, and they have now created their own body that they meet once a month and carry out a process of saying, how do we contribute to this research? In fact, um, I was just talking to them, as this project come to the end? And they were saying, well, what are we going to do next? Uh, you know, we could go at birth outcomes, but there's a lot of attention around that. We could go at violence. We could go at mental health. There's a lot of resources and attention to that. But there's resources and attention around obesity, too. But that's one of the areas for prevention of obesity, which would be complementary to immunization as a preventive initiative. I think they have decided they want to go in that direction. And this morning they were saying, even if the grant was not funded, we don't get another grant right away, they want to continue to be convened around this disparity issue. So I consider that a true success because they don't see this as a short-term commitment to addressing health and health disparities in their community. And they're truly engaged with the Medical College of Wisconsin. They are. They're real champions. They come out here and get involved with 
at the Center for the Advancement of Underserved Children. Um, they do calling. They help us with our events out in the community when it comes to health fairs. We share resources around that. And here's something that we were kind of surprised by, but we shouldn't have been, is that we thought the younger kids would not have immunization problems, and it would be the older kids, and it's just the opposite. The school enforcement keeps the older kids somewhat closer to that Healthy People 2020 goal, whereas the children between the ages of 19 and 35 months are the children who we have to find a way to make sure that we bring their immunization coverage up to date. Excellent. That's good to hear. Okay. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Wells. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. The state of Wisconsin requires by law that school-aged children, preschool through high school, be immunized against mumps, measles, rubella, or German measles, diphtheria, pertussis, often known as whooping cough, polio, and tetanus for admission to public schools. In a statement from the Milwaukee Public Schools, they report their rate of compliance with immunizations is up from 83% to 88% over the last five years, due in large part to working with parents. The CTSI, or Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin, is an eight-member consortium, including Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Clement J. Zablocki VA Medical Center, as well as the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, and the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. All eight institutions work together to accelerate the discovery and development of new treatments and interventions that will improve our community's health. If you'd like more information on CTSI or other CTSI Discovery Radio shows, just log on to CTSI mcw.edu. There, you'll find more than a dozen programs on research and the community, ranging from topics on type 2 diabetes to managing sickle cell disease, heart disease, and more. Up in the morning and out to school. You've been listening to CTSI Discovery Radio, produced by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin, in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The show was engineered by Tom Crawford, with special thanks to Sandy Everts, Drs. Herman Beats, and Reza Shakir.